Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, what's happening with the largest fraud case in city history? Columnist Nate Monroe brings us JEA trial highlights. Later in the program, the right to stand your ground against black bears and a celebration of gospel music. But first, cameras and recording devices are prohibited in federal courts, so having the eyes and ears of our first guest is extra important. I'm joined by Florida Times Union columnist Nate Monroe, who has been covering the JEA scandal from its earliest days. Nate, we appreciate you being here. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Anne. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. So what did we learn from the first week of this case? That it is going to be uh, a war of attrition. Um, This is a, we knew this going into it, this is a complicated fraud case. Um, It has the kind of the patina of political corruption and and, and intrigue to it. But at its core, this is a very document-heavy technical case. And I I think we saw, and and of course, I know you were in the the courtroom yourself during opening arguments, the the real challenge that the government's going to have to overcome and something that that perhaps in some ways benefits the defense is, is just the really complicated nature of this case. These jurors coming out of the gate got hours of opening statements thrown at them about this controversy. These are people who, by design, are coming into this pretty cold. You know, maybe some of them have heard a little bit about JEA, but by and large, they, they, are, they are there because they don't know much about it. And this is a lot to take in. Uh, so I, I think we're, you know, this, we learn that we are indeed in this for the long haul. This is going to be several weeks. Uh, and it's going to be slow going. There are going to be parts of this that are that are just pretty dry, and and uh, that that is going to be a challenge for the government. Is it clear at all uh, any strategies that are emerging that you're seeing either from the prosecution or the defense? I mean, the defense, the, the defense is in some ways, and, and really this is more Aaron Zahn's defense than Ryan Wanamaker. Uh, Aaron Zahn's defense is in some ways almost trying to relitigate things that, that I, I think kind of on the street, so to speak, are really just considered conventional wisdom. I mean, in, in Zahn's telling, the idea that he tried to privatize the utility at all is something that's still up for debate, uh, which, you know, outside the courthouse, I think is something a lot of people would find laughable. But in the courtroom, you know, he, he is trying to, to, in some ways, uh, kind of rewrite history, um, his attorney last week was, you know, presenting video clips to the jury showing that Aaron Zahn, you know, really wasn't this, this kind of doomsayer of JEA's financial future, that he was actually, uh, you know, celebrating JEA's financial strength. And, and <laughs> these are things that would, that would strike a lot of people as pretty fanciful. Uh, but, you know, trials are not, trials are not real life in certain ways. And this is, this is kind of a good example of that. Yeah, the rules of evidence are strict, and there's a lot that doesn't get brought into court. Um, but this is a really complicated case, as you said. Lots of witnesses, um, perhaps as many as 30 for the prosecution. So what witnesses have been important so far, and who are you most excited to hear from? Well, so we've really gotten so far. The, the government ha- has had really its kind of foundational witnesses on the stand. Uh, and what I mean by that is, they, they, in a lot of cases, the government needs uh, the actual investigators, like its, its FBI agents, to testify. And the primary purpose of that is so that the government can begin to introduce various documents and video clips into the record. Uh, th- that's just kind of part of the trial process that might look and seem a little strange, but it's, it's kind of a standard thing. And so... For example, most of Friday and, and what's going to take up a, a bit of this morning is uh, testimony from one of the FBI agents who worked on this case. And again, the primary purpose of that is really to get a lot of documents into the court record so that they can be referenced later when we get into more sort of substantive witness testimony. Uh, now, we should actually start hearing from the city council auditor's office today. There were a few employees in that office who the government plans to call as witnesses. These are people who essentially kind of decoded the 
alleged get-rich-quick scheme that is at the heart of the indictment against Aaron Zahn and Ryan Wanamaker. Um, and so they are, I think, in some ways, the government's best witnesses. Um, I know that you sat in with me over the summer uh, during some pretrial hearings, and we, we actually saw a preview of the auditor's testimony. I, I found them very impressive on the stand. Now, of course, they were not crossed by the defense counsel at those pretrial hearings, but they present very well. Um, I think these are witnesses the jury is going to find very credible, um, and, and I think they're a real potent kind of uh, tool in the government's back pocket. And I think we'll learn a lot about the direction of this trial based on how that testimony goes. And so that should be happening, actually, as soon as today and, and you know, certainly into tomorrow. Are you expecting to hear any more detailed level conversation about the former mayor, Mayor Lenny Curry's involvement, at least in the privatization effort? It's possible. Um, I, I think that we are at a point in this story where we have a pretty good feel um, for the mayor's involvement and, and what he did. And I don't know that we're going to hear any any real substantive surprises, but I have been surprised before in this case, and I'm open to the possibility that I could be again. So court gets rolling at 9 o'clock today and pretty much every day, and what is the uh, time frame that you're anticipating still for this entire thing to run its course? I mean, I think at least the next two weeks, um, possibly into the uh, following third week. Um, Some of this depends on what the defense does. Um, when the government's rested its case, um, the defense, both defense teams have filed exhibit lists and, and witness lists. And were they to to act on all of those, we could be here for a very long time. I don't know that the defense will do all of that. Um, but for strategic reasons, they're certainly not going to show their cards. So it, it's a little hard to say. But I mean, I think I think we're in this for a few weeks. And one thing that is complicated about this is both men have their own juries. So there's two juries kind of moving in and out of the courtroom. And actually, that was one justification for a proposed mistrial uh, last week when the prosecution acknowledged the fact that it was a little weird to have two juries. Yes. And that the judge very hastily denied that motion um, with the rationale that it is indeed strange uh, to have two juries and, and there's The judge didn't find anything wrong with the prosecution acknowledging that. Um, It it is going to make for a really interesting set of jury deliberations. Um, This could also potentially slow the case down. There will be aspects. I I expect this more in the defense phase of the trial. There will be times where the the defense requests the uh, one jury or the other to leave the courtroom. Um, and that can certainly slow things down, depending on how often the judge um, permits the defense to do that. Um, so it is a complicating dynamic, for sure, and, and very strange. Well, Nate, we look forward to these weekly updates throughout the trial. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Of course. Always happy to come on in. Up next, a controversial plan allowing property owners to kill once-threatened black bears. Welcome back. Florida's black bear population was once considered a threatened species. Today, it is instead considered a threat, at least by some, which is why lawmakers are pushing a plan to allow property owners to shoot and kill bears in self-defense. I'm joined by Adam Sugalski, who has been working as a wildlife and bear defender since 2015. He's the founder and executive director of the advocacy group One Protest. And to our listeners, what are your thoughts about killing black bears who come onto private property? Do you support or oppose the new bill? Give us a call at 904-549-2937 or email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on Facebook, Instagram, or tag us on X at FCC on Air. Adam, what does this legislation specifically propose? 
Well, um, thank you for having me on here this morning. And it's a very important topic. Um, stuff like this can get overlooked with everything going on in the world, but this is very important. So basically, what this would allow, it would remove all protections from uh, black bears. So if one came in your property and you thought you're reasonably threatened, you could actually just shoot the bear with no repercussions. Because in the past, if you did shoot a black bear, the FWC would do come on, investigation, ask you questions about it. Now it pretty much will be a free-for-all. You can say, well, I thought I was threatened, so I decided to shoot the bear. And that's pretty much what this um, bill will allow. So individuals who shoot a bear would not be subject to any criminal or civil penalties as long as they believe that they face, quote, quote, an imminent threat of death or seriously bodily injury to, to themselves or others. Yes, or um, damaging property of their dwellings so that they can protect their home if there's being um, tore up tore up, so they say, because what's happening is Jason Schoff is quoting. I saying, know, Jason Schoff. Uh, oh, she, uh, yeah. One of the promo- he's the one promoting the SB, uh, HB 87. Basically, we have he's quoting, we have crack bears in Florida, he says, that are breaking into people's homes and tearing homes up, and you should allow to defend yourself against these crack bears. And they're acting like we don't have laws already. We already have laws staying your ground. You can protect yourself, family members, dogs. If a bear does threaten you, um, there was a case where a police officer shot an off-duty police officer shot a dog, and there was an investigation, he didn't get in trouble because he was protecting himself and his, his dog. So these laws already exist, so we don't understand why this is even happening. What Explain the crack bear reference. What is that all about? He, he basically, in a, in, a, in a meeting, he stated that we have crack bears in Florida, and they're coming in your home. They're, but I mean, crack is in cocaine? Is that what you're... He, that's what he says. Explain that. We don't know. We don't know why he even says that. It's just, I guess it's just, you know, uh, grandstanding to us, or making like, you know, The Guardian came out with an article making almost making fun of it, that there has been no documentation of bears ingesting crack in Florida. I mean, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. This is, I think, uh, maybe also a reference to Cocaine Bear, which is that kind of, you know, film that was made about a bear, fictionalized story about a bear that got into a bundle of cocaine. And that's what, that's what we're assuming he's kind of referring that to get to kind of hype it up. So mm-hmm. so what is the current status now? It, it was approved by the Senate on Wednesday, but then the House changed it a little bit. They made some amendments to it. So it has it literally has one more round to go through. But the way the voting's been happening, it was 24 to 12 last time for um, 24, 4, 12 against. We think it's going to it's going to sail through. So we 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 pretty much at this point, we're thinking the governor is going to be the one to stop this. So we got an email um from John, uh, excuse me, from Paul in St. John's. He says that um, for some people, the urge to kill anything they fear or the opportunity to kill anything they want to kill controls their life. We should not allow the indiscriminate killing of bears. Adam, how does this issue resonate with the general public? Well, I think um, I think a lot of people they most likely don't live in bear country, and um, I think a few facts so that people need to realize is. Um, Black bears are 80 percent vegetarians and no one in the history of Florida has ever been killed by a black bear. So I, I think most people, you know, don't have really any encounters with bears. They really don't know what it'd be like to run into a bear. But the people that do, a lot of them, they have no problem with them. They coexist with them. And I think that if you do move near the woods, you should have a certain responsibility to coexist with the environment and around you as opposed to just shooting the bear. And a lot of the problems that's happening is because unsecured trash. So people are not putting their trash away, specifically in Franklin County, where this is happening. And the FWC says that um, HBC is like a human bear conflict is a term they use. And if you put your trash away and secure it, bears will not come back. So you can eliminate so many um, interactions with bears that can be negative, like what's happening right now. We're talking about killing black bears in self-defense. If you support or oppose it or just want to weigh in, you can give us a call at 904-549-2937. Or you can email First Coast Connect at wjct.org. We have a message from John on Facebook. He says, I can't believe this isn't already illegal. If your bodily harm is at risk, why wouldn't you be able to defend yourself against a bear when it's perfectly illegal to do the same against a human? And I think, Adam, what you were referencing earlier is that there is something known as the common law defense of yes. necessity. And that allows you to kill wildlife that threatens you. So explain why this is different than that and why this would be a standalone right. Well, what this does it, you know, like currently right now, there are, we already do have laws. So it's already in the book. So this is a redundant law. But what this allows is you don't have any repercussions now. There is no investigation. Um, the FWC will come and pick up the bear, but you can't sell the bear parts. And there are certain like stipulations like that. But it basically, to, to, we're calling it almost a backdoor bear hunt because when in 2016, when the bear hunt was stopped, we had one in Florida in 2015. 
and it was stopped and bear hunters have been chomping at the bit to have another hunt. And so, and to us, this is just a backdoor bear hunt because now you can kill bears. I mean, you can say anything now. You could say, hey, I saw a bear on my property. I thought I was threatened. It kind of came at me and I wanted to shoot it and they'll take your word for it. And then that's it. So that's kind of where, you know, where it stands right now if this passes. And, and so the understanding, my understanding is that this common law that currently exists, the common law defense of necessity is uh, the standard is that a defendant reasonably believed that his or her action was necessary to avoid uh, to avoid the imminent threat of death or bodily injury. Um, the defendant didn't intentionally or recklessly place himself or her in a situation that would provoke an attack and that there were no other means to avoid the threatened harm except for shooting. And the difference in that, in that uh, law is that it does allow for an investigation. If a shooting occurs, mm. it allows law enforcement or FWC to come and look at the circumstances. Yes. But, but if this happens, it will remove all those protections. So say it's, it becomes a free-for-all. Um, we have a call, Charles from Jacksonville Beach. Good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Charles, you there? Hi, guys. Um, yes, ma'am. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, yes. This gentleman may have already answered these questions, but from a from my perspective, I would like bears to be protected. I would personally prefer that we don't have a hunting season to take out the bears. Um, and he's he's already talked about several things that you don't necessarily have to have any new laws about. It, it's it's called the tutor drill. That's anything that's within 21 feet can get to you in 1.5 seconds, and you generally have the um, opportunity to use. Uh, self-defense to prevent serious bodily injury. So theoretically, we already have all the rules and everything we have and need in, in effect. Um, a, a, a bear, whether it's a, a upset bad bear or Ted Bundy, if they're within 21 feet of you and they decide to cause you serious bodily injury, you can protect yourself. You can use whatever means, means are necessary to stop that event of serious bodily injury. So theoretically, we already have everything we need, and per perhaps I just would like something in place to protect our bears. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Charles. Not appreciate appreciate the call, Adam. It was um, actually the issue of killing black bears, hunting black bears, that got you involved in the issue in 2015. Um, remind us what happened that year and and why you personally got involved in the issue. Well, in 2015, the FWC had had their first black bear hunt in um, over 20 years. So, you know, our group, you know, you can see that the, the, the FWC had not even finished their population count and was going to have this hunt. And so we ended up staging, a, I think it was an 18-city protest all around Florida at the same time, trying to get the trying to get it stopped, which we knew we wouldn't stop it. So when the hunt happened, you know, I went and documented bears being killed um, for two days. And they basically had to stop the hunt after a few days because the bears were coming in so quick because all these bears in areas were eating deer feeders. They were baited and they were just sitting there. They, were, they hadn't been hunted, so they weren't scared of the people in the area. So it was almost a free-for-all. FWC stopped the hunt after two, um, two days. And then in 2016, FWC wanted to have another bear hunt. So our group staged a 28-city protest and we went to all the meetings. We spoke and the FWC called the hunt off due to public pressure saying Floridians don't want to hunt and it's not going to happen because... Um, Already spoke spoke against it. So the numbers at one time uh, of black bears in the seventies, there was as few as as three hundred or five hundred bears in the state. But the species was able to rebound. It no longer is considered a threatened species. And now there's over four thousand, I think, according to the yeah. most recent estimates, four thousand bears. Um, so they have not been protected with that threatened designation since 2012. Um, the population has rebounded, but growth patterns in Florida have also changed. Oh, yeah, you know, with the, you know, the human population coming in, you know, deforestation, these are issues a lot of times when you move bears out of neighborhoods, they go to, to look for food sources. And we always end up blaming the bear. We're not blaming um, people's actions and then taking the, putting their trash away, putting the bird feeders, you know, cleaning the grills off. Like we had the steps to, you know, to change our behavior. The bears really don't. They want to come in for a free meal. And so, I mean, it took 50 years for the bears to get here from a population from three to 500 to now over 4,000. So we have a comment from Scott on Facebook. He says, bears, like deer, are game animals. I know of no other state that has the high bear population of Florida and doesn't allow hunting. Next, for 150 years, we never saw the bear conflicts we have now because bears were hunted. Open hunting and these problems, open up hunting, and these problems 
will disappear. Um, how do you categorize the problem, Adam? Well, the problem is, I mean, he's absolutely incorrect. The problem is humans are no ones who are misbehaving. It's the trash, the coming in the neighborhoods, the, you know, you tear down the woods and you move your homes there and there's your next door forest and bears are coming. What do you expect? And, you know, bears have the way of regulating their own population called delayed implantation. So when a bear gets pregnant, the, the egg sits up in the uterine wall. And if, if there's not a lot of food sources, you know, the, the bear might not even have a cub or if it's abundant food sources, you might have three to four. So bears can regulate their own populations. Deers cannot. Deers need predators to regulate their population. So you cannot compare a deer hunting season to a bear hunting season. They're completely different topics. So you say um, black bears are usually non-aggressive and tolerant of human presence. I did not realize that there is no record of anyone ever being killed by a black bear. In, in Florida. In Florida. Yes. Um, but they do cause some property damage. I wonder if you um, see that being inflated or uh, perhaps just kind of more commonly understood to be a problem because of the presence of things like viral videos. There's a lot of people now who have ring cameras that have kind of a night vision capability. And it, it seems like we're just generally seeing more videos of bears in a human setting. Yeah, I mean, that, that you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, everyone, I mean, I have cameras around my house, the ring cameras, and, you know, you're probably, you probably are seeing more of this because those are generally available. And one thing on the FWC, even on their website, they have the, you know, black bears will avoid confrontation 90% of the time. And that's from the FWC because they're shy animals. They don't want to interact. It's usually a starling situation. Like it's in your garage getting a bag of dog food. And then you come out with your dog. The bear might have a cub nearby and it tries to defend its cub. And that's where these situations occur. So there are some recommended best practices. And I think that the Democrats in the state are kind of supporting this as opposed to the stand your ground proposal. Um, it's includes things like keeping your grills clear, making your trash le less accessible, taking bird feeders out when, when bears are in, in season kind of active and not to leave pet food outside. Um, do people seem willing to make those kinds of changes in their personal lives to live more, uh, you know, peacefully with bear populations? You, you see some neighborhoods are very responsible and because you can get these bear straps or your, your trash can so the bears can't get in. And once the bear figures out it can't get in your trash can, it's going to leave it alone. It takes some time. But it, so, you know, I think you have it's kind of an individual basis. But I think if you could implement these or the counties would do this, it would solve a lot of these problems. And we probably wouldn't even be here, you know, if, if the people were taking responsibility and accountability for living near bears and doing things like securing trash. I saw that in Volusia County, which had had a spate of kind of bear-related bear incidents, they saw a 95% reduction in those after they introduced bear-resistant trash cans. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to ask you about that because most municipalities now provide trash receptacles mm -hmm. to their to the people that they're picking, or whatever trash service provides those receptacles. How much more expensive would it be to have uh, bear locks or those kinds of devices on there to prevent bears from getting into garbage? Um, they have bear straps. I'm not sure the exact cost, but a lot of times you can get them for free. Some places will give them away, but you can find bear-proof um, straps. So if you, and there are bear-proof trash cans, which are much more expensive than the straps because that can be, some people can't afford like a few hundred dollar trash can, but they can afford maybe a $20 strap to put on their, um, their trash can. Um, urban sprawl is a part of this issue. And it's not unique to black bears in terms of when populations grow into wild areas and Florida still has a lot of them. Um, there's going to be more encounters with wild creatures. Yes, I do. I do a lot of um, droning and I drone deforestation and you'd be shocked at the amount of um, habitat loss that we have in the state of Florida. And that the problem is the people in charge are not putting wildlife corridors in so that the animals cannot travel because there's really not one bear population in Florida. There's like a fractured bear population, I think up to even seven because they're isolated because of the road systems. So that's another big problem that we're not addressing from the top down solutions like, okay, you know, put in wildlife corridors, you know, and maybe leaving a little more force set aside for the animals. It's worth noting that while the bear population has has also grown, as we noted, that Florida itself has grown uh, from about 5 million residents in 1960 to more than 20 million today. And so, again, that is the growth pattern that you're describing. Yeah, and you, you know, there is a lot of um, bears being hit by cars. There's a lot of, there's a lot of a deaths by them during the year with all the construction coming in. So it's unfortunate. This is like, Hopefully these issues will get addressed at some point, you know, um, because it, it, if we don't do something for the bears and it's not even bears, it's all wildlife because bears are like an umbrella species. So if you protect their habitat, you're protecting deer, you're protecting, you know, fox. So all the other ones, because they, they need more space 
um, to exist. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being here. We'll obviously continue to watch this issue. I don't believe that there's a set date yet for the Senate to rehear, but um, we will continue to follow it. So thanks for being here. No problem. And uh, thank you very much. And anyone can go to our website, bearedefenders.org, and sign the petition and, and see how they can get involved. Awesome. Stick with us in just a minute. We preview an event exploring the power of gospel music in Jacksonville. It's not far, just close by, through an open door. Wake all done, carry by, going to fear no more. Mother's there expecting me, mother's waiting too. Lots of folks gather there. And we're back. The soaring sacred roots of Black gospel music are the focus of a four-hour docuseries that premiered on PBS on February 12th and 13th. And in an effort to continue the conversation, WJCT Public Media hosts an event next Tuesday exploring the impact of gospel music in Jacksonville. I'm joined now by three-time Grammy-winning jazz drummer and Jacksonville native Ulysses Owens Jr. Welcome. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Freddie Rhodes, program director at Victory Gospel Radio, AM 1360, and longtime studio manager at Mm -hmm. uh, Channel 4, our news partner. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations on your retirement. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And Cersei Noble, WJCT's Grants and Education Outreach Manager. Hey, Cersei. Good morning. So this evening uh, that is planned, it's going to be hosted by ethnomusicologist Dr. Fridara Hadley, who was featured in the gospel program, which, if you haven't seen it, is just incredible. Um, It includes local experts, pastors, musicians. Ulysses, you began playing drums at the age of three? Uh, Two, actually. Two. (laughs) Uh, Early starter. And then you landed a full scholarship to the Juilliard School's inaugural jazz program. Yeah, in New York City when I was 18. And now I'm actually a small ensemble director at Juilliard. So I literally commute back and forth. But my beginnings were in church. And that's why it's so important to me to be part of this event. Talk about the role of music in the church that you attended and the role of music in your own young life. Absolutely. So for me, um, I look at music in the church. Actually, I teach a class with Fedora Hadley at Juilliard, and we refer to the black church as the conservatory. And we feel that it is the birthplace of talent. So I grew up, my mom is a choir director. My father was a sound guy. And so I got exposed to music and then through my cousins who played. And so it was like second nature. And so through that, I kept developing. I kept playing. I was the drummer for the choir by age five. You know, so you build that commitment and that that level of um, just being consistent. And then, you know, 16, I fell in love with jazz music. 18, I met Winter Marcellus and then moved to New York City. But I always tell people I would not be any of who I am and who I'm becoming without the power of the black conservatory, a.k.a. the black church. And for people who maybe didn't grow up in the black church and don't have a strong background in what gospel is and its roots and its power, how do you describe it to them? To me, gospel music is is the perfect blend between the sacred text. So you have hymnody, you have worship songs, um, but then you have sort of the religion um, the Bible, the scriptures, all of that through song. And then obviously, you know, I came from the Pentecostal church, uh, which is also called the charismatic church. And so then you have the spirit, the dance. And so to me, it's the complete um, experience of all of the things that we love about music. And then you put that into the church and then you have that black experience. And then you couple that with the South and you're talking about a celebratory, um, incredible time. So, and, and one of the things I talk about in the course is that that music has inspired all music. So when you hear Aretha Franklin, you understand why Whitney Houston exists, or you think about Rihanna, Rihanna or a Drake or all these other popular musics could not exist had it not been for a Mighty Clouds of Joy or for all, you know, Joe Lagana, whoever. So I think we have to understand the roots of this music 
is the black church, which again goes back to slavery and Congo Square. So it's it's the perfect line, the lineage of the music. Um, so yeah, that's that. I'm very passionate about that. We're talking about the role of gospel music in Jacksonville and in music overall. Yes. And you are welcome to join the conversation by giving us a call at 904-549-2937, or you can email First Coast Connect at wjct.org. Uh, Freddie Rhodes, you spent a lifetime in broadcast yes. television, but yes. your passion is gospel music. Yes. Talk mm-hmm. about how you got into gospel radio and why that is something that continues to inspire you. Well, you know, I was raised up in the church and, uh, you know, it's, it's, and the music has inspired me down through the years. I go way back. We was talking earlier in a conversation about, you know, quartets, the choirs and the male and the female soloists. Have, um, you know, all those have really, and the music just have impacted me down through the years. So uh, broadcasting has always been something I wanted to do uh, in my early career was radio and television. So things worked out perfectly. I was able to do both of them for about the same length of time. You know, over 54 years I've been doing radio here in the city of Jacksonville, gospel radio. I started out doing R&B, but uh, gospel radio was my passion. You know, because that was my life, uh, gospel. So uh, it has really been a, a, a great ride all these years. And uh, still doing it. Yeah. And and you have an incredible radio voice. Oh, thank yes. you. <laughs> Are you thank also you. a singer? Oh, someone asked me that earlier. I said, no, you don't want to hear me sing. Because <laughs> I, I listened to myself last night singing. I said, oh, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> I better stick with what I do. You know, somebody says, stay in your lane, you know, so hey. <laughs> And what is the audience like uh, for gospel radio here in Jacksonville? Is that a big audience of people that rely on you all through the week? You know, um, the audience is great. Uh, What we do at our particular station, we try to play a better variety, you know, because we want to reach all ages. You know, you got some of the the new artists like your Ty Tribbetts, you got your Kirk Franklin's, um, your Mary Mary's and all those different type of artists. On our stage, you can hear those artists. Now, I also can go back and play, like you mentioned, the Mighty Clouds of Joy. Mm-hmm. So at my age, I know what's way back then, and I know what's now. So I learn all what the young people like. So I'm able to really blend in what the young people like, along with the our senior citizens, people my age, what they like. So we say we have to stay in the place of better variety of gospel music. So that's what makes it work for us. Cersei Lenoble, explain why WJCT Public Media is interested in continuing this conversation that is rooted in this uh, docu-series that Henry Louis Gates presented on gospel music? Well, uh, at WJCT, we view ourselves as the convener for the community. We provide the space. We provide um, the connections to the documentaries and stuff. So we wanted to, we knew that there was a rich history in Jacksonville, but we wanted to make sure that we had the right people. So my job is to find those right people and bring them in and get their help. Um, in terms of connecting us with everybody and making a rich experience for the community. And so who are some of those people that you're going to be connecting the community to? Who participates in this uh, event and what else can people expect when they attend? Well, it's an amazing event that Ulysses has helped us curate and he's connected us with those experts and Freddie will be on the panel. Fredara Hadley will be the host. (laughs) The host. <laughs> and um, we have also artist Lisa McClendon and um, Bishop Rudolph McKissick Jr. He well is known. also yeah. and he is also featured in the documentary as well. So we were really excited to have two people come to Jacksonville who are featured in the documentary. So it's really about taking that TV show, that national TV show and bringing it to the local community and the local connections and showing people how experiences like watching the program can have an impact in their daily lives here. And seriously, I just want to interject. We also have a local talent who's incredible and has become a national gospel artist. And that's Meacham Clark, who oh, used yeah. to be the oh, former yeah. minister of music um, for Pastor McKissick. He's going to close out the event with a gospel performance with his group, wow. Meacham Clark and Co. And Co. And the Bethel Church is well known for its music. Yeah, as, absolutely. As are a lot of churches in this city. I mean, there's some extraordinary gospel choirs and, and performers. Um, is there a lot of overlap? Is there a lot of awareness church to church about the music programs and the quality of the performances at other churches? Or do people sort of stay in their lane, as you were saying? 
Well, I, I guess because you got so many types, you know, you, uh, you got the younger group like the Maverick City music. That's what you, one of the latest trend. You got praise and worship type music. You got the like the gospel, the Pentecostal sound, and uh, you know all those goes together and make a, a a real great experience. You know, mm-hmm. I, w- I would also um, sort of to answer that. I think that you have different denominations that stay in their lane, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, you have your Kojic, Church of God in Christ, your Church of God, your Baptist. And so within those community and dom- denominations, those musicians absolutely interface with each other. But there is sometimes a separation mm-hmm. between yeah. um, the denominations because that's, as uh, Freddie said, or Mr. Freddie, as I like to call him, yeah. um, there's a separation of worship styles. Yes. And so sometimes if you have a Kojic way of worship, they don't necessarily um, – fully embrace it in their worship service how the Baptists would worship. They respect right. it, right. but everybody wants to continue to worship and celebrate God in their own way. Right. And so that's why there's always kind of these lines or sort of these uh, points of boundaries around that. And there is, uh, is this program then kind of a way to get a greater appreciation of the different threads of gospel music over the years and in the present? I would say it's less about a, a, an appreciation of all the different threads, or more of an appreciation and awareness of gospel music, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I was talking to Mr. Freddie about earlier is this town is paramount to, uh, I would say, the launching and just the exploration of this music. And I don't think people give Jacksonville, Florida enough credit. And, you know, we can't go into the history now. We don't have that much time. So this event is kind of a, a point of illumination to say, hey, this art form is great. Here's this documentary that's nationally known. We mm-hmm. got some folks coming here, but there are folks from this city that are also part of the national and global conversation of this music. So that's what I would say for for Circe and I, um, how we curated is is really just bringing um, and highlighting the impact of gospel music. And that's exactly the point of why we do events like this. And of course, you can't have a gospel music conversation without a performance. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gotta mean, have church. And we could, yeah. we could have gone on for hours. <laughs> it was very difficult to narrow down who we were going to speak with and who we would invite to and perform. And so, you know, that's really the point of this is that we bring it to people's daily lives. And the event on March 5th, people will see a little of the of the gospel documentary um that and then they'll also hear some performers there'll be a discussion um if people haven't seen the documentary how are they able to view it currently they can view it right now anytime on demand at jackspbs.tv and it's it's a great show it 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 really is is a traces an enormous history and you know it's not just the music for music it really is something that was part of protest movements over the years um, and really significant in the, in the civil rights movement. Yes. And so talk a little bit about how that uh, evolution happened, um, how it's been a sacred music and, a, and a, a way to worship, but also something that's driven kind of political goals and personal goals. You know, I, I would like to say it started back way, even during slavery times, you know, um, Meet me down at the river, stuff like that. Well, really was gospel, but it really was giving out messages uh, in the music, and it just and the style just just stayed with us. It's something we inherited from generation to generation to generation. So that's why uh, black gospel music people have such a unique sound. It's it's just it's just everybody can enjoy it, and it just it's just that sound. You were talking about it earlier. It's just a particular sound that we have, and it just went way back then. And what makes someone cross over from just purely gospel into pop or mainstream music? Someone like Aretha, someone like oh, Whitney. Oh, you, you know what? You, you, we have to, in, uh, going way back in the day, one of my favorites, one of my idols in, in singing uh, before we, it was Sam Cooke. You know, he started with a group way back then uh, known as the Soul Stirrers. And uh, then he transitioned to R&B. You know, we have Johnny Taylor who started out with R&B, uh, started out gospel, and then he transferred to R&B. So, um, you know, I guess I don't, sometimes it's the money, it was the money thing, you know, because you know how people come and say, hey, you could do this, mm-hmm. you know. But that's where their roots are yeah. in gospel. And I would say stylistically, um, the difference is the lyrical content, because many times, to his point, these different singers, they, they did not change their vocal approach. Right, right, um, right. But you may have had a, a shift clearly in lyrical content, yeah. but then also instrumentation. Mm-hmm. A big key thing 
uh, for gospel music is something called the B3 Hammond organ. Mm. It's an instrument. And when you hear that Hammond organ, which is actually on some R&B records, but that is very indicative of the church. So I would say that the gospel sound uh, is always there vocally, but when you start surrounding different instrumentation and then you bring in the marketing and the, mm. the, the uh, sort of the beast of the pop world, that's kind of what gets separated. But it's all the same sound. And oh. I, I yeah. do think those artists that did transition, we all know that they went back and they yes. they referenced their roots and they celebrated their roots and shared gospel with a larger audience because of their fame. Mm-hmm. You know, Aretha and Whitney. Yeah, Aretha is a huge example. People don't understand that album. And Mr. Freddie, you probably could say more about it than me because you were you were around. Um, that album, Amazing Grace, with yeah. James Cleveland, oh, who Mr. Man. Freddie actually yeah. met um, yeah. and had yeah. in Jacksonville and hosted. However, that album was at the height of her career. Yes. And people don't understand that would be the equivalent of Beyonce, who just made a classical record. It would be the equivalent of her working with, you know, Kirk Franklin right now. Yeah, exactly. So we don't we we hear and talk about Aretha. But even in the height of her career, she chose to make that that gospel record, mm. which speaks to the impact of the music and, and her father, C.L. Franklin, and, and his legacy again in her life. Yeah, that was a case of just going back to your roots. You know, she she grew up in the church, uh, like you said, with her father, Reverend C.L. Franklin, and uh, he instilled in her uh, the gospel. So she just it was it was like we say, plant a seed. That seed of gospel music was implanted in Aretha. Uh, she had the God-given talent, you know, and then and like she went right to R&B. But I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe eventually she came back to gospel and did, did more gospel for her transition. So, uh, you know, like you go out, like I was telling him earlier, uh, I started out in gospel, but I went and started doing some of the 70s, you know, Temptations, Spinners, you know. You know, so uh, I was known as Dr. Love on the radio. <laughs> so, so, but I went back to my roots, you know, so that's my first love was gospel music. Cersei, how can people get involved on Tuesday if they want to attend? Very easily. Go to wjct.org slash events and register. Well, we're going to close it out with a little Mahalia Jackson here in honor of gospel music and yeah. all its greatness. Ulysses Owens Jr., Freddie Rhodes, And Cersei Lenoble, thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And in just a minute, how one family turned heartbreak into a mission to feed those in need. Today Explained, in all of the excitement about the wonder drugs Ozempic and Wagovi, what happens if you're fat and you don't see yourself as a problem to be solved? It doesn't just feel insulting sometimes. It can feel like we're not really welcome in the world anymore. Life in a bigger body in the age of Ozempic. That's coming up next. Tonight at 6.30 here on WJCT News 89.9. 
Months of war in Gaza have brought the humanitarian situation to a breaking point. That's especially true in the southern city of Rafah, where more than a million and a half Palestinians seek refuge from the ongoing violence. I'm Carolyn Beeler. The latest from the Israel-Hamas war and all of the day's top global stories. Listen next time on The World. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air, do you ever write an important email and are later alarmed to find that although you were sure you sent it, it's still in drafts? Or do you ever walk into the kitchen only to find that you've forgotten why you're there? We talk about how the brain forgets and remembers with neuroscientist Charan Raghunath, author of Why We Remember. Join us today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. We all hear things differently. That can be tough when there's so much noise. But how do we better listen to each other? I'm Jen White, host of 1A. This election year, we're a space to speak up. We're also committed to the idea of becoming better listeners. That's what 1A is all about, from WAMU and NPR. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. We're back. It's a mission to feed that grew out of love. In 2019, 24-year-old Matt Watson died in a car accident. In his memory, his mother, Belinda Omer, and her close friend, Delonda Morton, united to create love lunches in recognition of his love of cooking and helping others. I'm joined by both of them now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Belinda, I'm so sorry about the loss of your son. Tell us a little bit about Matt and how did he inspire you to create love lunches? Matt was a light. Whenever he stepped into the room, he lit up the room. He wanted everyone to be happy, let alone love to cook and eat. So our competition was cooking in a kitchen and talking, just talking to each other and joking around with each other and saying which meal was going to be the best. So when he passed, we decided to do this organization. We prayed up on it and it led us to this. Um, so what we wanted to do is continue in his honor the love, the caring, and giving, and cooking, and helping others. And so did he get his love of cooking from you, from cooking with you? Yes, he did, of course. Yeah. Did he you have did. some favorite meals that you made together? Yes. Red beans and rice, cornbread, fried chicken, banana pudding, mm -hmm. all the above. Oh, he loved. Yes. Great. Uh, and Delanda, how did you become part of this organization? How did you decide that this was something you wanted to partner with Belinda on? So before Matt transitioned, we, we'd always wanted to do something in the community. And so we talked about different things, and we were always going to do something. And then when Matt went home to be with the Lord, it was a wake-up call that um, nothing is promised to us. And out of love for Matt and out of love for my sister, Belinda, it was something that had to be done to make sure that his memory carried on and to make sure that she survived that. I didn't realize that you were siblings, we're just not. sisters in spirit. Yes. In heart. In okay. heart. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, and so what is Love Lunches? What does it do? And um, what is its, specifically, like what's its mission, but what does it physically do? So we feed the homeless once a month in St. Augustine on the fourth Saturday of the month. So our mission is to feed people, to help people in his honor, uh, doing exactly what Belinda does, you know, stated earlier. So we have been feeding people for the last five years now. We can't believe it's been five years, but that's exactly what we do. Where there's a need, we're there. Uh, we've gone up and down the streets out of the back of the car looking for people to feed toiletries, whatever people need were there giving. And so you started the organization almost right after Oh, Matt's absolutely. Death. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. We were determined that his memory would live on and to make sure that Belinda was surrounded by love and that she got to keep mothering her baby. And that's what she does every single month when meals are prepared. She's being a mother to her baby. And that's what we're doing. I see that that's emotional for you, Belinda, and, mm -hmm. and 
I, I understand that. Um, so do you make meals that are inspired by him? Any recipes that <laughs> yes. you try to make uh, that he would have liked himself? Yes. Um, red beans, chicken and dumplings, rice and gravy, green beans. So, yes. It's just because it, if I'm feeding the soul, that's I'm, I'm happy, at my happy place. So where do you meet people in their need? How, how do you locate people who are you know, need a meal, where do you go? So we teamed up with Dining dining with Dignity, um, and that's how we're able to feed every fourth Saturday of the month um, at, at Victor's Park. And we feed from 5.30 to about 6.30. Is it Eddie Vickers Park in uh, St. Yes, Augustine? Augustine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, or we used, like, we used to get in a car and drive around, and we will find someone that needs food. And have you noticed an increase or a decrease in the need in St. John's County and St. Augustine? We have. When we first started this, we prepared 50 meals. We had no idea what we were doing. It was a little bag lunch. So we started actually in downtown Jackson. Now we feed anywhere from 55 to 60 people a month. It's increased. We're seeing more women. We're seeing more children. Um, we have regulars that we know now that we're establishing relationships with. So there definitely has been an increase. And so if somebody wants to get involved, it, either to help you prepare food, distribute food, donate, what, what are the opportunities? Well, they can go to our website and we have all the information there um, where you can volunteer, donate, and see our schedule of where we will be um, and also what we'll be doing in the fall in, in, no, through the year. And what is the website? It's love. Uh, dash lunches. Okay. Com. Okay. And, and you work with other providing agencies or mostly with dining with dignity? Like, are you working with the county at all or the city? No. Just independent. Independent. Any pushback that you've gotten for providing that service? No, not at all. Has it been generally well received? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I want to thank you both for the work that you do and for being here today. Delonda Morton, Belinda Omer, thank you both so much for being here. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our program. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future conversations. And if you missed anything, you can catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock tonight or find today's show at wjct.org and on your favorite podcast platforms. The executive producer of First Coast Connect is David Luckin. Our producer in Paris is Stacy Bennett. Kathy Waterman is our associate producer on deck today. And our director is Brady Corum. Join us again Tuesday when we talk to local fertility experts about how an Alabama court ruling is impacting the IVF industry. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.